Welcome to Tomball Bible Church. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us at tomballbible.church. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure for me to be back bringing the word today. I'm John Hattenberg, one of the elders, in case you don't know me. We're going to take a little detour today. Uh, Many of you know we've been studying the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Roman church. And so we're going to take a little detour off that, off the Roman road onto a slightly different track, but not too different, frankly. First three chapters of Romans is all about uh, man and his state of being, particularly those who have not trusted in Jesus. And so it's uh, a lot about sin, a lot about man's uh, depravity. It's a lot about God's goodness, and it's also about God's wrath. And so... This morning, uh, thinking about our sinful nature and sin and the seriousness of sin and God's wrath, reminded me of a dog that my wife owned. The dog's name was Kylie. And um, my children, my three kids, uh, bought this for my wife on her 40th birthday, which was uh, a few years ago. The dog is dead now. I never wanted this dog in my house in the first place, but I was smart enough not to say so on her birthday. But now that the dog's been dead for a few years and everyone is grieved properly over the dog's death, I can talk openly about this dog now. But let me just tell you what this dog was like. This dog was named Kylie, and it was a German, uh, sorry, a, a miniature schnauzer, which is a German demon. The dog, the dog was evil. There's no other way to say that this dog was just evil. Uh, the dog had a, uh, some some serious uh, problems. The p- biggest problem was the dog did every, anything that he wanted to do. Anything she wanted to do, she just did it. Training did not work on this dog. And But the biggest problem she had was she would eat. She had an eating disorder. Uh, I'm sorry to say, dogs do have eating disorders also. And so she ate anything she wanted. Sometimes it was food and sometimes it wasn't food. We had a Christmas party uh, one Christmas, and uh, we had about 50 people in the house wandering around having fun. And the dog jumped up on the kitchen table, grabbed a loaf a poppy seed bread, a whole loaf of it, dragged it under the table and ate the whole thing. And then snuck back later and was eating off people's plates through the rest of the evening. That was uh, annoying, uh, but she also had this habit of going underneath the kitchen sink. So we had a, a little wastebasket under there, we'd put garbage in there. And so she figured out how to open the cabinet door and get the garbage out, and she'd strew it all over the kitchen floor and eat it. So we had to put child-proof locks on the kitchen cabinet door, but the dog was smart enough and wasn't a child. Apparently, we needed to get the dog-proof locks because she figured out how to pick the child-proof locks, and she was able to get in uh, anyway. Um, She also ate things that weren't really edible. My wife had some snails in the garden, so she went down to the store there, down to Lowe's, and bought some of the snail pellets, and she sprinkled the pellets around in the garden, and the dog apparently thought it was cat food, so she came and ate that. And the poison almost killed the dog. But almost is probably not good enough. Anyway, because uh, a few weeks later after she recovered from that, she was uh, around Easter. She was in my son's room, and she ate all my son's Easter candy. And most of it was chocolate. And if you have a dog, you know what chocolate does to dogs. You know we were cleaning up after that dog for about a week. But um, the biggest problem that the, cat, that the dog had, frankly, was the dog enjoyed cat food. We also had cats, and so my, my wife would, would feed uh, the cats. The dog, uh, the dog would just come running from wherever she was. She would instinctively hear the, the little pellets of cat food going into the bowl. We did feed the dog. I wanted to make that clear. We weren't starving the poor thing. She had a big, fat belly, and she was well-fed on dog food, but she loved eating the cat food, and we couldn't somehow get her to do that. So most of the time when Karen fed the cat, she had to kick the dog outside while the cats ate. But as soon as she let the dog back in, she immediately ran in and would scarf up any leftovers that were there. 
So I decided, well, I'm a man. I can solve this problem. This dog is not smarter than me. So I got a newspaper, which is the official uh, disciplinary tool for dogs. And I rolled it up nice and tight so I was, uh, I was there. And so I went to feed the cats. And so I, I poured the cat food in, and the dog came running. Ooh, a little butt was wiggling. I was so happy to be able to eat the cat food. And I stood there uh, above the cat bowl with this with his newspaper in my hand, poised with my knees bent and everything, I was going to whack this dog if he got anywhere near it. So she came in, took one look at the bowl, got excited, took one look at me and said, hmm, this is unusual. He's not usually standing over the cat bowl with a newspaper. Took a look at the cat food, took a look at the newspaper, took a look at the cat food, waited about a quarter of a second, and just, just jumped right in. I whacked her really hard on the butt. She went scooting down the hall and, and out of sight. 30 seconds later, she was back. And uh, we went through that, 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 that rerun. We just did it over and over and over again. I whacked that dog probably 15 times before Karen said, stop, I think the police are coming. Uh, someone has called the cops uh, about, the, about the barking dog, and so, but she never did learn. The point is, is that the dog was uh, sinful, sinful to the core. The dog was unable to obey, and the dog was always bent toward evil. Now, that's a parable a biblical truth which we'll come back to in a few minutes. So Stuart will come back next week and pick up where we left off in Romans chapter 1. But for this morning, I want to go through, go down this uh, little country road that I call God, Man, Sin, and Psalm 51. And so I want to tell you where we're going because most people uh, like to know where they're going. I do. And so the roadmap for this morning is I want to answer Four fundamental biblical questions this morning. The four questions are, what is God like? Question one. Question two is, what is man like? Question three is, how does God view sin? And question four is, what must man do about sin? And then at the end, we're going to jump into Psalm 51, which is David's uh, psalm about his own sin, and we'll gather some facts and some information from that. So let me uh, open in prayer and then we'll jump into our questions. Lord, we just want to thank you for this morning, this day. We thank you for your word, which is clear. And uh, we pray that as we discuss this morning uh, what your word says about you, about man, about sin, and what we need to do about sin, that you'd open all of our eyes and our hearts, mind first, to what your word has to say, and that you'd allow me to deliver that message clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first question is, what is uh, God like? The short answer is that God is holy and righteous. But the long answer, which deserves a long answer, is that God is an infinite being. And so we as finite beings can't really describe God uh, very clearly. Uh, In fact, we can't even comprehend God. But we do the best we can, and so we typically talk about God in terms of his attributes. Attributes are part of his character. God has a lot of attributes, and I just want to list some. Uh, God is eternal. He is infinite. He is unchanging. He is incomparable. He is all-knowing, all-seeing. He is all-powerful. He is everywhere, and he is sovereign. And in addition to that, he is uh, just and fair. He is truthful. He is self-existent and independent. He is gracious, good, kind, merciful, forgiving, patient, loving, compassionate, beautiful, and glorious. Now, those are just some of God's attributes, but it goes a long way to describing this infinite being that we really can't quite comprehend. But I want to zero in today, this morning, 
on two of God's attributes that have a lot to do with sin. And those two attributes are God's holiness and God's righteousness. God's holiness and his righteousness. The most important attribute of God is his holiness. The reason I say that is because all of God's other attributes build on this idea of holiness. Holiness, uh, at, at, its, at its best, is, is the idea that God is separated from sin. God is perfect. He is uh, sinless. He is uh, pure. There's no hint of any moral impurity in him whatsoever. He is spotless. The word holy itself means set apart or separate. And so the idea is that God is separate or set apart from his creation because he is perfectly pure. It's almost, you get this picture of God standing in the middle of a field like a farmer with no one else around. And he alone is separate and distinct and set apart from man because of his holiness. Revelation 15.4 says about God, it says, you alone are holy. God alone is holy. Isaiah 6.3 says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in Psalm 99.9, it says that the Lord our God is holy. Now, because God is holy, he is also, the second point, he is also righteous. Righteousness has to do with the fact that God acts. All the things that he does, God acts in a way that is, that is always right. Everything that God does is right and good and just. Psalm 11.7 says this. It says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. In Jeremiah 9, God declares, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight. So there, that's a three-minute version of what God is like, which brings us to our second question, which is, what is man like? Well, the short canine answer or the dog answer is man is a lot like that dog, Kylie. Man is a lot like that dog, Kylie, sinful to the core, unable to obey, and always bent towards evil. The long answer, which is a biblical answer, is that God has made uh, man in his image. And so man has some of the attributes of God, but not all of them. But the Bible also teaches that man is radically depraved. Radically depraved. Those two words need some explanation. Radically simply means that at the very core, at the very root, at the very center of, of man, he is depraved, and depraved simply means that, that he's marked by corruption or evil. And so the idea of this radical depravity is that, is that at our very core, we are corrupt and sinful. And, and that, that is the nature of man, and that's what the Bible, uh, Bible says. It's all throughout the Bible. Jeremiah 17.9 says this. It says, the heart, talking about man here, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul writes in Ephesians 2.5, he says that, that man is dead in his transgressions and sins. And John 3.19 says that man loves the darkness rather than the light because his deeds are evil. Psalm 14 probably says it the best. Psalm 14 verses 2 and 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So the idea is that man, in his very nature, has this natural inclination to sin. It's almost like a car 
whose wheels are out of alignment. And some of you may know what I'm talking about. You're driving down the road, you're holding the steering wheel, everything's fine. But you let go of the steering wheel and the car just instinctively veers off the side of the road and runs in the ditch. That's man's nature, naturally inclined towards sin. Now, this doctrine of radical depravity doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that man is as wicked as he could possibly be. It doesn't mean that man has no conscience. It doesn't mean that man doesn't have any sense of right or wrong. He does. And it doesn't mean that man can't seem to do things that are good. In fact, there are some things that we seem to be able to do that seem good to us. But even those things, at their very core, are not good in God's eyes, mostly because, almost always, we have motives that are not aligned with God's. And so we're not seeking after God's glory when we do things, oftentimes, we, are, we have selfish desires and motives which are not aligned with God's. Even our good deeds are no good. Isaiah says this about our good deeds. He says, all our righteous deeds, in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or like filthy rags. And so the idea is that not much we can do. We have this natural propensity, a natural propensity to sin. Now, we all know what sin is. Sin is, is, is any violation of God's moral law, any violation of God's moral law. That could be either in speech or in action or in thought or even in our attitudes. And sin, the word sin in the Bible is taken uh, from, from an archery term. If you've got a bow and arrow and you're shooting at a target, sin is missing the mark. And so the idea of sin in a moral sense is that we miss the mark of God's moral law. And the fact is that we're not very good archers, and we miss a lot. That's the nature of us as human beings. And sin is a serious thing. Sin is a serious thing. We know this from experience, that when we sin, it often causes us damage, conflict, and difficulty for ourselves as well as for other people. But sin is a serious thing for another reason. It's serious because it goes against and is directly opposed to not only God's law, God's moral will for us, but it's also against God's very character. Which brings us to our third question is, how does God view sin? And the short answer is that sin is an abomination to God, and it requires God's wrath. The long answer goes like this. It says that because God is holy and righteous, sin is utterly disgusting to God. Proverbs 15.9, it says this about sin. It says, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. And so this word abomination, which we don't use very often, is, is, it, it means disgusting. It means, it means uh, repulsive. It means detestable. The best example of this I, uh, I, I can think of is I was, I was wandering through the, the living room one day. I wasn't watching this show, trust me. Someone else was watching it. I won't name whom, but, but there was a contest, and all I can figure is these were morons who were so greedy for money, they'll do anything. But the contest was to see who could eat the most disgusting thing. And this is on television, and, and I happen to be watching it at the moment. And the winner of this thing took a whole handful of centipedes, live centipedes. You know what those are, right? They look like worms, but they have a hundred little legs. And when you step on them, they crunch. But anyway, he took a whole handful of these things, and he stuffed them in his mouth, and he chewed them up, and he swallowed that was disgusting. I had to run out of the room because I was, thought I was going to puke. But that's the idea of abomination. Something utterly disgusting and revolting 
and detestable. And that's what God says our sins are. God hates our sins. God hates it. Zechariah 8.17 says, Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. God hates them so much that he will punish them. He'll punish them in his anger. And so God's wrath on sins is part of God's holiness and his righteousness. And in Isaiah 26, 21, it says this, For behold, the Lord is coming coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, punishment. We cannot hide our sins. God is all-knowing, all-seeing everywhere, all-powerful. He sees all of our sins, and God will punish them. But we sin anyway, even though we know God will punish them. So that brings us to our fourth question is, what, what must man do about sin? And the short answer is that man must deal with his sin. The long answer is that how man deals with sin depends really on whether or not the man has trusted in Jesus, believed in Jesus, or not. Now, if you've not believed in Jesus, then sin is a death sentence. God's holiness and righteousness requires that he punish sin, and the punishment for sin is an eternity in hell. Hell is a real place where people whose sins are not forgiven go, and they remain there alive forever in agony and pain. That's the biblical view of God's punishment. The only hope for men to avoid that punishment is to believe in Jesus. Because Jesus came down to earth specifically to die on the cross to pay the punishment for our sins. But only if we believe in Jesus. And so if we believe in Jesus, all of our sins are covered over by the death of Jesus And God sees us as holy and righteous, and when we die, we will go to heaven to be with him. So if you haven't believed in Jesus, you need to deal with your sin. And what is the best way to deal with your sin if you haven't believed in Jesus is quite simple, is to believe in Jesus. But you may say, hold on, John, I thought you said that man was radically depraved. How can anyone choose to believe in Jesus who is good How can anyone who's radically depraved believe in Jesus? Why would they choose to do that? Because they're bent towards evil, they won't choose Jesus. And that's a good question. And the answer is, is that man on his own cannot do that on his own. He needs some help. He needs some help from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's job in bringing a man or a woman to saving faith in Jesus is to regenerate him. This word regeneration appears in Titus 3, 5, where it says that God saves us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel talks about this in Ezekiel 36. This is that God will remove your heart of stone, give you a new heart, and put a new spirit in you. This idea of regeneration takes place before a person is able to trust in Jesus. And what it does is it puts just enough what I call moral intelligence or spiritual goodness into a man so that he can make a good choice, he can understand the gospel message, and he can believe in Jesus. And when he does, he becomes radically changed. At his very core, he becomes radically changed. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is, if he has believed in Jesus, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We believe in Jesus. We become a new creation, radically changed at the very core, because when we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And the Holy Spirit has the power and gives us the ability to not sin. We didn't have that ability before. The ability to not sin. But we also continue to have the ability of free will, which means that we can choose to sin or choose not to sin. We can choose to give the Holy Spirit a stiff arm and say, I don't want your help today. I'm going to go ahead and sin. And we sin. So for those who have already believed in Jesus, how do we deal with our sin? Well, our sins are already paid for by the death of Jesus. Let's be clear about that. So we don't lose that in any way. We'll go to heaven when we die. There's no doubt about that. But we still have to deal with our sin. Because for Christians, sin is a real problem. Why? Because sin, when we sin as Christians, it has six, at least six, bad things occur. The first is that sin hurts our relationship with God. We see this from Isaiah 59.2 where it says, But your iniquities, that is your sins, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So it hurts our relationship with God. The second bad thing that happens when Christians sin is that, is that it may cause God to discipline you, much like a father will spank a child for disobedience, and his spanking hurts. And so we'd be wise to avoid painful discipline. The third point is that in our walk, to become more and more like Jesus, once we trust in Jesus, we, we were on this, on, this, on this incline of becoming more and more like Jesus every day, and sin causes us to walk backwards. We walk away from that. The fourth point is that sin provides Satan with a, a foothold in your life to control it. The fifth bad thing that happens is that sin ruins your witness among non-Christians. Non-Christians see you sinning, and they say, oh, he's no different than anybody else. He's a hypocrite. And the sixth thing is that sin causes us to lose what we call heavenly rewards. Yeah, there are, there are rewards for, in heaven for Christians. We don't know exactly what those rewards are, but we do know that sin would cause us to lose some of those. So, how are people who believe in Jesus to deal with sin well, I think there's just a two-step process. Step one is don't sin. And then step two is when you sin, the Bible says that we should do three things. We should confess, we should grieve, and we should repent. So let me just run through those quickly. Confessing, God admonishes us to confess our sins. And confession simply means that we agree with God that what we have done is wrong. Psalm 32.5, this is another Psalm of David. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I acknowledged it. I admitted it. I agreed with you, God, that it's sin. And I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Confession is an important thing. Unconfessed sin harms us. If we try to hide and hold back and don't confess our sins, it has a, has a negative impact on us. Proverbs twenty eight thirteen says this. He says, whoever conceals his transgressions, whoever hides his sins, will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Unconfessed sin has this ability to eat away at you inside. You know it's there, but you don't want to admit it. It has this ability to drain your energy. 
It can actually cause you guilt and pressure. It can even cause physical pain. We must remember that God doesn't ever want us to become comfortable with our sin. We don't have the ability to wander around and say, yeah, yeah, that's just part of my nature. That's just who I am. We might be able to hide certain sins from our spouses or from our friends. But since God is all-seeing and all-knowing, we can't hide our sins from God. So we shouldn't do it. Confession is necessary because God hates all sin. Second point is that we should grieve over our sin. We should mourn over our sin. We need to hate sin as much as God does. We need to understand and recognize in our heart of hearts that our sin is an abomination to God, much like eating a handful of centipedes. And if we love God more than we love our sin, we will see our own sin as disgusting and abomination. Jonathan Edwards once wrote, he said, The more a true saint loves God, the more he mourns for sin. I've been a Christian about 36 years now, and I'm far from perfect, but I'm a lot better than I was 36 years ago. I sin less. But I'm also much more aware of my sin, and I'm, I'm grieved by it. It shocks me sometimes when I sin and commit sins that I easily overlooked 35, 36 years ago. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians seven ten. he said, Godly grief, a good kind of grief for your sins, godly grief produces repentance. And repentance is the third step, and that repentance is, is uh, different from confession. Confession is simply agreeing with God that, yes, I sin. Repentance is an action item. Repentance says I, I rethink how I think about sin, and, I, and I, my rethinking causes me to change. It causes me to take some action and change my behavior. Second Chronicles 7.14 says this about repentance. It says, if my people, this is God speaking, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This little phrase here, turn from their wicked ways, is the idea of repenting. It's, I had my mind in this direction, but I'm going to turn from that or repent and change my actions. To repent requires us to rethink our sin, to, re- to recognize that it's offensive to God, and then take action or change. Now, what I want to do this morning is, is uh, with that introduction, is, is walk through Psalm 51. Psalm 51, as I mentioned, was written by David. It is essentially a confession of David's sin. David was an interesting character. Uh, if you've read your Old Testament, you know him quite well. He was Israel's second king. He's described in the Bible as a, as a man after God's own heart. So he had his act together. He was aligned with God's own heart, but he was a major sinner. A major sinner. You can see most of that in this, if you want to read it in, in, in another time later this afternoon, in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. We won't read that today because we don't have time, but let me just give you a quick summary. David committed adultery with a married woman named Bathsheba. Bathsheba's husband, whose name is Uriah, was away at battle at the time. And then uh, Bathsheba got pregnant. And that's a scandal, even for the king. And so David had this grand plan to cover up his sin. And so he ordered Uriah to come home from the battlefield, hoping that Uriah would go to his house, have sex with his wife, and then David and Bathsheba could pretend 
that the child to be born was Uriah's. But that didn't work. That plan failed. Uriah didn't go home. And so David, two or three nights in a row, he was like, I, this, I don't understand this guy. So he sent him back to the battlefield. Sent Uriah back to the battlefield and called his, his commander of the army and said, put Uriah right up at the front in the battle. And when the, when the battle is the fiercest, have your men withdraw so that Uriah dies. And that's exactly what his battle commander did. And Uriah got killed. And then David married Bathsheba. And then the baby was born. And that was a dark and sinful time in David's life. Adultery and murder, even for a guy who's described as a man after God's own heart. So what did David do? Well, for about a year, David ignored his sin. He just hid it. He didn't think anybody knew about it, but God certainly did. And he didn't confess his sin for well over a year. And a little while after the baby was born, God sent a man named Nathan, a prophet, to see David. And Nathan confronted David about his sin and told David that as punishment for his sins, God was going to kill the baby. And God did. After being confronted by Nathan, David did the right thing. He recognized his own sin and he confessed it. And in doing so, he wrote this Psalm 51, which we'll read in a second. Now, Psalm 51, before we read it, has got 296 words in it. But 32 of these words, about 11% of the words in the psalm, are I, my, or me. And if that's all you knew about the psalm, you might think, well, oh, I see. This is a psalm all about David. This is all I, my, me, I, my, me. And it's very self-centered and very gratuitous, but it's not. The reason it's got so many I, my, and me's in it is because David is pointing fingers at himself for his own sin. He's saying, I sinned. I know. These are my sins. These are my transgressions. This is my iniquity. And he's asking God, he's saying to God, he's saying, wash me, cleanse me, teach me, restore me, deliver me. And so as we read through here, you'll see it all throughout the, the, uh, the text in Psalm 51. David recognizes that he's the problem. He didn't try to blame Bathsheba. There's no hint of him trying to pass the blame off on Bathsheba. He didn't try to blame it on his nature. He, didn't, he just said, I'm it. I'll take full responsibility. So let's go ahead and read. Psalm 51 is, uh, for many people, a popular psalm. Many of you have read it before. It's a, really a great model of confession of sin. And let's just scroll through that this morning. Psalm 51, beginning of verse 1, says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy... Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Have mercy on me, O God. David wastes no time getting right to the point. For him to ask God to give him mercy as a confession, is he basically saying to God, is I deserve to die, have mercy on me, and don't punish me with what I deserve. It's a confession. He asked God to be merciful. He says, he says, in your abundant mercy, please have mercy on me. And David agreed with God that he had sinned. He said, I know my transgressions. I know them. And he agreed with God that he had sinned. Verse 4 says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, 
so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David knew that ultimately his sin was against God, that his sin was an abomination to God. He said, against you only have I sinned. But David wasn't pretending that his sin didn't have any effect on other people. In fact, his sins had a large impact on three people. Uriah died. Bathsheba became a widow and an adulteress. And the baby died. That's a huge impact. But ultimately, David knew that it was most offensive to God, who would find his sin an abomination. He said it's evil in God's sight. And David grieved over that. David grieved over the fact that his sin had grieved God and wrecked his relationship with God. Verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Well, this sentence is a little hard to understand. It almost sounds as though he's, he's saying his mother uh, sinned when she, she had him, but she, he's not saying that. What he's saying is, David is saying that, I yes, I am radically depraved. In fact, I was radically depraved before I was even born. I was radically depraved the day I was conceived. David admits his own depravity. Verse 6, he says, Behold, you delight in truth and inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David repented, changed his mind. I wanted to change his action, but he knew he needed God's help to do that. He knew that, knew that God needed to go inside of his heart and change his own heart. And so that's why he said, teach me wisdom in my heart. He said, teach me, purge me, wash me. Help me change my ways. Help me have a different attitude about my sin. And then he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David was just simply expressing the fact that that he was in pain, that he had waited a whole year to confess his sins, and during that time, he he had no joy or gladness. And he was relieved to be able to seek that after God and to confess that sin and to receive the joy and gladness that comes to him. And he talks about broken bones here, and the idea is simply that David was in such pain, such emotional pain about a lack of joy and gladness in his life, but he also had physical pain, felt like he had broken bones. And that's what unconfessed sin can do, has both emotional and physical effects. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David asked for an inward renewal. He asked for this a heart attitude. His heart wasn't right with God when he sinned, and it wasn't right with God when he hid his sin or tried to hide his sin from God. And he wanted to change, and so he asked God for a clean heart and a renewed spirit. And he pleaded with God. He said, cast me not away from your presence. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't push me out of relationship with you, please. Bring me back into relationship with you. That's repentance. That's true grief. Verse 13 says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. David's repentance caused him to take some action. He said, God, if you will forgive me, I will, I will do things. I will, I will serve you. He says, I will teach sinners about you so that they will return to you. I will sing aloud uh, about, your, about your righteousness. I will speak and praise you. He took action and made a promise to God for that. And finally, in verse 16, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David knew that God desires a broken spirit, a contrite heart. A contrite heart is one that's humble. It is sincere. It is truly grieved. It is a broken heart over the fact that we have sinned and that those sins are an abomination to God. And he knows there's only hope. The only hope is Jesus. So confess, grieve, and repent. And when we do that, one of God's greatest promises comes true every time. And we'll close with this. First John 1 John 1.9 says this. You've read this many times. If we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God from whom all mercy and forgiveness flows. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you're a good God. We thank you that you are holy and righteous. We thank you that you are a forgiving God. We know, Lord God, that our sins are an abomination to you and that you are disgusted with them. And yet you love us so much that you sent your only son down here to earth to die on the cross to pay the punishment for the punishment for the sins that we have committed, the punishment that we deserve. And we know, Lord God, that when we believe in your son Jesus, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are paid. And yet we still sin, Lord God, and we know that we need to come and confess and to grieve and to repent of those because sin is a damaging thing in all of us. Pray, Lord God, that all of us, me first, would go today remembering to confess, to grieve, and repent. We pray this in the powerful name of your Son, who sits even now at your right hand, and will come back. Jesus Christ. Amen. To find out more, visit us at tombaubible.church.